the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to my good friend, the legendary martial artist Richard Norton. Richard has lived an amazing life, from bodyguarding the Rolling Stones and Linda Ronstadt, to becoming an action film star, stuntman, and fight choreographer to some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters. This interview is packed with inspirational true life stories from a man who has truly lived the art of self-reliance. In this episode, we discuss the importance of saying yes to opportunities even when you are afraid, the philosophy of possession, and Richard Norton's favorite Chuck Norris story, plus more. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So Richard, here's my first question for you. When you think of the word self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Self-reliance. I guess it's knowing myself, you know, and understanding my strong points and my weak points and being very honest in assessing my own strong points and weak points. Meaning I, I think it's a little bit like um, if I was doing a, you know, often we might do a kata in karate. And in my mind, I might think, wow, that was fantastic. I look great. And should I happen to video that particular thing and have a look back at it and have a look as though from the outside looking in, it can be often quite a different impression. And it's, and it's, quite, it's quite confronting sometimes when the perception we have of ourselves, we, we come to understand that it's quite different to how we're perceived outside of ourselves, you know? So I think trying to be honest with one's shortcomings, whatever they be, and being okay with that. And, and the self-reliance, I think just, or the confidence out of that, realizing, you know, that, that we are not perfect beings and everything. It's what are you going to do about it? You, you know, I, I like to rely on myself and try and be honestly aware of what I need to work on and then set about doing that, whether it's reading books, whether it's watching YouTube, whether it's listening to other people that I'd look up to as role models and just trying to take action to sort of, uh, to sort of, I don't know, make up some of those shortcomings, so to speak, you know, and self-reliance too, for me, you know, relying again on, on my abilities. I mean, in other words, I, I try and, not always try and look outside of myself for the answers because it's very easy for us to almost be a victim, you know, well, who can help me? Who can I go to for advice? Who can help me get out of what I'm in or my head, the head space that I'm in at the moment when, you know, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it all starts with yourself. The battles within yourself with martial arts is always about that individual battle 
you're going to be better than some, you're going to be worse than others, you know, but it's being comfortable and being, again, just very honest of where you're at. But again, understanding that you can do something about that to what extent, I guess, would vary on all the individuals. But, you know, I, that's, that's what I think I look at. And, and again, it's just being honest, being honest with what I'm capable to do. And, and a bit of the self-reliance too is not always, I'm talking about what I can do myself. There is a stage where this is why we have role models and masters and teachers and everything else, because there are times that I rely on my ability to sort of empty my cup and taste somebody else's tea and go to that person that I think has more knowledge than I do in a particular area that I want to improve on and being okay with that, being okay with being the student and being open to the input from somebody that obviously has a little more um, worldly knowledge in whatever area it is that I want to improve on. No, that's beautiful. I mean, I, there's so many points there that we can kind of hone in on and talk more about, but I thought, what probably is a really good idea, and I don't normally do this on these episodes because I always do the introduction myself, but I think it would be really important for the listeners to know some of your backstory from where you came from to where you are now because you have an amazing life story. So I think if you can kind of give us the Cliff Notes version, the highlights, so to speak, I think it will really you know, allow us to situate the things that you're talking about. So in people's minds, they can go, okay, you know what? I can see why Richard is saying these things because look at his, look at his life and you've lived a life. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been an amazing journey. And the great thing is it's, it's just still an ongoing journey, but for a quick snapshot. And I guess if people have heard some of my other interviews, you'll know this. So apologies to those who have heard this before, but for those who haven't, um, I grew up in Croydon, which was uh, 20 miles out of Melbourne, Australia. It was kind of in the bush, as we call it, you know, it was very much not certainly not a city sort of life or, or, or environment that I was brought up in, but it was amazing. And I'm so happy that that's where I grew up. And um, look, I used to just have a couple of friends up the street. We'd always be wrestling and boxing and doing everything else that young kids do. I do want to say, and I've often said this about, which leads to my martial arts journey, that, you know, so many times you hear stories of people getting beaten up by neighborhood gangs and all sorts of violence. I never had that. You know, my, my neighborhood was, was safe as far as can be. Of course, there was a certain amount of violence around. But it, it was a really good environment where I was always up the bush. We're having stone fights, you know, up the back of our house because there was a train line, you know, right at the top of where we lived. We'd go and chop trees down. Not that I would do that now, being environmentally friendly and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, it, um, I had a friend move into a house opposite where I lived in Croydon and he was disappearing twice a week. We, you know, we came meeting friends when he moved in. I was only 11 years of age and I asked him what he was doing, where he was going and he told me he was going to a judo class. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, I need to go. I, you know, I want to go. So his dad would drive Morris, his name was, and I down to this, uh, this judo class. It was being run by a police sergeant. And that was my introduction to martial arts. And I've got to tell you again, it wasn't through that I need to learn how to fight. I, I still say to this day that, it's cliche as it sounds, it's like when I got introduced to judo and, you know, a few years later, karate, 
I absolutely knew that was what I wanted to do with my life. That was what I was meant to do. Just, and again, back then, you've got to understand in Australia, this is 1961, you know, I'm 70 years of age now. So in 1961, judo was about all we had. There, there were, I found that some karate schools around, but minimal. In other words, like everything else, there might've been a bit of wrestling around, but pretty much it was boxing. You know, boxing was what kids were exposed to at that age. And I used to look at comic books and they used to have these ads on the back of comics books advertising judo, you know, and the typical thing of defeat 10 attackers with a flick of a wrist, you know. And of course, as a kid, I'm like, wow, that, that, that's, that's amazing. You know, I need to learn this. So it was a very mystical lure to the idea of judo. Of course, when I started, I was at 11 year old, I was very skinny and very small. And I basically got used to cannon fodder by the elder teenage sort of uh, judo players and got chucked from one end of the dojo to the other. But it was still an amazing intro. And, and cutting to another friend that trained with us at judo told me about a karate school that was opening up three miles from where I lived. And there, were, there was a demonstration. So we all went along and had a look at this demonstration. Tino Sebarano was the instructor. He'd been out in Australia around about six months from uh, Hawaii. He was Filipino, so Hawaiian Filipino. And he did this demonstration. And again, it was very fundamental H pattern, kata and forms and a bit of ju kumite, which is kind of controlled sparring they would do. And the style was goju. And I looked at that and I, I was just blown away. I, I immediately said, oh, my God, I, I, when can I start? So that started my karate journey. And this was in like mid sixties and a friend of mine that I was training with, who was 10 years older than I, Bob Jones, who used to run security in Melbourne, all the nightclubs and the bars and everything else. He ran security, had incredible reputation as a street fighter. And anyway, he wanted to start his own style. And again, I'm, I'm keeping all this as short as I can. And he wanted me to go with him. And that was a big step for me. You know, I was like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, I ended up going and we started Zendo Kai, it was called. The original name was Australian Goju, but we got a lot of flack from the powers that be by using the name Goju, Japanese title, along with Australian. So we called Zendo Kai, which we lo loosely called, uh, or, or the, our definition was the best of everything in progression meaning was very much an eclectic style, a lot like the early American martial arts schools where they weren't just tied to one style, but they would look at other aspects of wrestling, boxing and everything else, incorporate that into the training to make it a little more palatable to a Western sort of mind. So it was still based though in, in traditional uh, Goju and traditional karate. And so we did that and I, we started that in 1970. In 1973, uh, well, by the way, as a late, in my late teens, I was also working doors. And uh, <laughs> I always laugh when I say discotheques. People say they very much dates me. But there were discos back then. And we worked doors on different discos around Melbourne. So that was quite an intro to me into the real world of uh, reality-based <laughs> violence. But I worked the doors there. And in 1973, Paul Dainty, uh, an Australian entrepreneur who used to bring a lot of uh, music acts out to Australia, asked Bob and I if we would look after the Rolling Stones. And of course, we said yes. So Bob and I, what an intro, by the way, to the world of, of rock and roll, right, with the, with the Stones. And this was very soon after Altamont, where 
Remember Altamont where there was a Hell's Angel killed a punter in the crowd. So the Stones were all very little bit kind of aware and paranoid about the idea of violence. And anyway, we ended up doing that tour. That led on to a multitude of tours through Paul Dainty. You worked with Joe Cocker, uh, ABBA, uh, Fleetwood Mac, David Bowie. I was with David Bowie for eight years, around about eight years. Linda Ronstead, James Taylor for 14 years. Um, so that, that started an incredible journey. So then cut to 1979 and I'd worked on a tour with Linda Ronstadt and for the younger ones who don't know, Linda would have been as big as Beyonce in her day, 10 Grammys, sang rock and roll, country and western, the whole works. And Linda, I worked a tour with her and she wanted me to go and work for her full time in America. And I, uh, that was a, you know, which is something we could talk about. This is, you know, it was such a big decision for me to make because Believe it or not, when I left school, I worked for the immigration department. I did interviewing. And I used to interview people wanting to bring, you know, their relatives out and all this sort of stuff. And in the meantime, I would train every morning. I'd train at lunchtime and then I'd go and teach with Zenokai every night um, after work. So the idea of leaving everything, I had a girlfriend, so I had martial arts skills, I had my job, and you know, my mum was very old school, oh son, you've got to work for the government and get security and save up for your superannuation and blah, blah, blah. And basically when you retire at 65, then you can start to live. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so anyway, it, it, you know, it was a big decision for me. And Linda, I still remember the, the very words that made me take the leap was Linda said, look, why don't you try it? You can always go back home. And I thought, you know what, how, how true is that? So I resigned from immigration off to California. Mind you, I did tell everybody that I'd be back in three months. I wasn't going to live over there. Of course, 38 years later, you know, I'm still there. So that, that was a life-changing decision for me. And the one little bit I want to throw in there is that in 1978, Bob went to America and got in touch with Chuck Norris. And we ended up bringing Chuck out to Australia in 1978. He was doing like advertising, uh, I think, Good Guys Wear Black, one of his very early action films. And uh, so he, that was a you know, reason for him to come as well as coming and doing demonstrations at some kickboxing tournaments we we're holding. Bob was the first one to introduce kickboxing into Australia. So I was demonstrating on the same card with Chuck, demonstrating some Okinawan weapons. Chuck was doing his thing. We formed an immediate friendship to which Chuck said, if you get to California, make sure you give me a call and uh, we'll do some training. And by the way, I had no aspirations to even go to the US. So when Linda asked him to come out, off I went. The first person I called was Chuck. He invited me around to his house. We started training every morning at his house. We'd do two and three hour workouts. And through Chuck, I was introduced to amazing people like Benny Dejeto, Kides, Tadashi Yamashita, Fumio Demura, Bill Wallace. In other words, people I probably would never have had the, the door open to just because who the hell was I, but because Chuck was so respected and well-liked, it was a meeting amazing uh, sort of introduction to a whole different world of martial arts for me. And the final stage of that is that, and I was still doing bodyguard work, by the way, I was working with Linda and James and still with Fleetwood Mac and training with Chuck. And Chuck was in the very early stages of the Octagon, one of his early action kind of ninja based movies. And because he could see that I handled Okinawan weapons and all the rest, he asked me if I'd play his nemesis in the movie. 
And I, of course, they said yes. So suddenly I'm on the set with some amazing martial arts, you know, Simon and Philip Ree and again, Tadashi Yamashita and Gerald Okamura and on and on it goes. And I'm like, wow, how cool is this? I'm actually using my martial arts, which I love, and I'm actually getting paid for it. And what a life this is. So that started my movie career. And I did a few movies with Chuck, got offered a couple of roles on my own, Force 5 being the first one with uh, Joe Lewis, the legendary Joe Lewis and Benny Oquides and everybody else. And so I started doing a lot of stuff on myself, uh, got introduced to Jackie Chan, ended up working in Hong Kong. So off we went. And that's pretty much my life to this date. It's been meeting new people, training with different people. You know, again, we can talk about meeting uh, the Machados and, you know, I first started training with Hicks and Gracie. So it's just been, uh, it, it, it all came though out of what I call daring to participate. It's like daring to step out of one's comfort zone and get a little uncomfortable. And I think back that if I hadn't made that decision to actually go to America in 1979 at the invitation of Linda Ronstadt, I probably... Well, I mightn't even be here. I probably would have retired from immigration five years ago. I've got all my super saved up and I would have had the most boring life you could think of. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So I think that's, that's a really important point, right? You're talking about this idea of daring to participate, stepping out of your comfort zone. I mean, just anybody listening to that story and the offers that you were given, like, you know, Chuck Norris saying, hey, you know, will you come and play my nemesis? I'm assuming... You had no idea about acting, what it would be like to be on a set and saying, okay, I'll just go for it. For most people, they'd be like completely freaked out. And I mean, I'm not going to do this. There's no way I can, but you, you did it anyway. And that to me is like the most amazing thing is that I think a lot of people, they have opportunities, but the fear of actually stepping out of their comfort zone just stops them from doing it, right? Well, you, you know yourself, Rodney, there's a, there's a saying, fear keeps people ordinary. Because it's so hard when you, you know, and by the way, I was fearful when I got offered a role in a movie. Probably, though, why I did it is I was very naive because, you know, I still remember that, you know, I played, you know, Keo, which is the sort of crimson hooded uh, enforcer. But I also, four of us, including Chuck's brother, Aaron, did all the ninja work throughout. And I was also a character called Longlegs, where I was me. And I still remember that I, the, the first line I had was sit down. So I'm in my head and I'm like, oh, shit, Academy Award. You know, how hard is this? Until I got on the set with everybody around and it suddenly occurred to me there was about 20 ways I could say sit down. I could say sit down, sit down, sit down. And it, it, it's, it gave me a realisation of how much there was in this new area that I was stepping into which prompted me to immediately get an acting coach and go and again try and get more knowledge that I needed to be able to have a bit of longevity in the industry, you know. And um, but fear is an interesting thing i mean i don't think there's a seminar i do where i'm not a big astomato originated but the same and what i learned that means is yes everybody feels fear it's what you do with it you know but i when i get fearful whether it's an acting role or coordinating a movie which i'm doing a lot now or or whatever it might be or teaching a seminar the fear propels me to prepare more it it 
because I, I want to allay those fears and be okay, you know? And Napoleon said that confidence is a factor of preparation. And he was talking about war. And of course, it's the same thing. Anything that stresses you or makes you fearful, the more prepared you are, the more confident you will be when you get to the stage of having to actually do whatever it is. And so I've, I think fear is a good thing. I remember seeing Nicole Kidman doing a, an interview saying that just about every role she got offered just scared the shit out of her. But she wouldn't actually accept a role unless it scared her because it just, it propelled her to be better, to do more work on the character, more background, more work on every aspect of the role she's about to play. And I think, I think that's a fantastic thing. And, you know, and again, it's very easy. You know, I've had jobs offered where the easiest thing in the world and I've gone through the battles in my head of going all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. Well, it's too stressful. I don't have the skills and all of this stuff. And the, the hardest thing is to just say yes, you know. And I, I did a course called Money and You once with uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And he, one of his big things was the, the first step is to say yes that's your conscious thought. And meanwhile, your subconscious freaks out and goes, what the fuck did you just agree to? And now you have to find a way to actually do that job and to come up with the goods, you know? But again, it all starts with saying yes, because to, you know, I, one of my most least favorite words I always say in the English language is mediocrity. I think people are very happy to be mediocre. Well, I'm okay. I'm as good as this one, not quite as good as that one. And, and, and I, I don't like the idea of mediocrity. And this is, again, where fear comes in, being presented with something that challenges you and takes you out of your comfort zone, where you are then propelled, a bit like we talked about, really to become self-reliant and do whatever it takes to at least be able to perform the best to your ability, which again is all you can do, but but you need to do the work. You know, I remember Benny Okidas, you know, saying, you know, I learned a lot from Benny when he would get in the ring for a fight. He said, I never ever got in the ring without having done my homework. I never got in wondering, can I punch hard enough? Can I kick hard enough? Have I got the endurance the last 10 rounds? He always got in having done his homework. So we get back to Napoleon, you know, confidence of active preparation. And he said, if I got beaten, I knew it was purely because the other person was better, not because I wasn't prepared. And there's a lot in that, you know, I think that's, that's a very valuable lesson. So, yeah. So I was just, you know, while you were talking there, I was reflecting on this idea of one when an opportunity has presented yourself to say yes, even though you might be scared shitless. But I think as you noted is that when you are afraid, you can, you can use that in two ways, right? You can either use fear to shut you down or you can use fear as you noted to propel yourself forward. And sometimes having that fear is actually a really good thing because it allows you then to take a situation far more serious than you would have. And then even though you've said yes, and you might not know how to do it in that moment, you can figure it out. This is what people don't realize is that actually, you know, just because you said yes to something and you don't know how to do it doesn't mean that you can't learn how to do it. And I think a little bit of stress or even sometimes some marginal amount of stress can actually help you you know, really key in and learn the skills that you need to. Otherwise you wouldn't, because if it was going to be easy, you probably wouldn't have 
tried in the first place. And you wouldn't be nearly as good as you could be because you would tend to just sleepwalk your way through it, you know? And that's the thing. This is why, again, fear is a friend of extraordinary people, the ones that will actually take up the mantle and do everything they can to allay those fears. And I, I think I think that's a very important uh, lesson because otherwise, again, you you stay mediocre, which for a lot of people is okay. I mean, the world is full of mediocrity, you know. I just don't want to be one of those. And it doesn't mean I'm not saying I'm better than anybody at anything, but I do try and set goals where I keep trying to strive for whatever my perception of excellence is. And I always say excellence, I believe, is unattainable, but the journey toward it is not. And that, you know, that you just keep striving to be better, to be better. You know, I, I, I love the idea of, of goals and goal setting in that, you know, I love, uh, I'm not sure whether you've read The Critical Path by Buckminster Fuller. It's an amazing book. Buckminster Fuller is like a genius. He invented the geodesic dome, the mathematical equivalence of synergy and all of this stuff. Now, it's a, it's a heavy book to read. You almost feel like you've got to be a rocket scientist to read it. But there's some fantastic stuff. And some of the things that I've got out of that is the idea of bodies in motion. You know, because, by, you know, procession is basically, it's... Um, it's really the effects of bodies in motion on other bodies in motion and the 90 degree effect it has outside of this intended goal you have. Anyway, I'll get into that in a moment, but the idea of goals it, the and, and why goals are often not as fulfilling as you think they'll be once you attain them is it might be that I'm, I grew up in Croydon and I'm doing karate and I say, you know what, there's a Croydon Karate Championship. If I could enter that and win that, that'd be all. I'd achieve something. That's all I'd want to do. It'd be such a thing to do. So I enter and I win. Suddenly, wow, there's a Melbourne Karate Championship. Maybe I should enter that. And if I could just win, that'd be all I'd want to do. I'd be happy. I'd be content. Uh, not content. Suddenly it's the Australian championship and so on. And the point being that it's all about bodies in motion. Bucky basically sort of says that anything that stops still long enough is probably dead, whether it's a plant or a tree or a human being. So the idea of goals not being as fulfilling as you think is to keep propelling you forward, is to keep setting new goals where you're always trying to get that fulfillment and that's really the whole idea, you know? It's easy. If you have no goals, you're going to remain stagnant and in, 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 not in the literal sense, but you're kind of dead, you know? It's look at us with martial arts. I mean, to be a martial artist, you should never be satisfied. I always said I never want to be the same martial artist I was five years ago. I don't want to be doing the same cut or the same moves. I want to be, I want to be feeling expressing martial arts in a different way. And the only way I can do that is by setting goals about training something new. Maybe, you know, I've been doing Sistema for a bit, you know, or, or getting into jujitsu when I'm a stand-up fighter. In other words, stepping out of the comfort zone, setting a new goal of learning. And, and that, again, is, is what life is all about. And, uh, I, you know, I just, I think, again... For me, that's why I, I just want something that makes me want to get up every morning, you know, something that excites me. And the trick is, of course, finding out what that is, what is your passion. And of course, it's going to be different for everybody else if you're a musician or whatever, 
Um, but, but I, you know, I, that's all I'm saying is, so the goal, the idea of goals and they're not being fulfilling is it's just bodies in me. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep moving. You keep striving, you know, for something. And, and I'd love to talk about another thing if we have the time that he talks about that's important to me and, and it's called procession or the processional effect that Buckminster talks about in his book, The Critical Path. And it's, it's a bit to get your head around. I know when I read the book, I felt like I had to be a rocket scientist to even uh, understand it. But anyway, I'm just trying to sort of explain why I felt important to apply it to my life. And again, just for the listeners to understand that procession is the effect of bodies in motion on other bodies in motion and that it operates at 90 degrees or right angle from the force. So again, the example he used is you drop a stone in a pool of water, it creates a ripple effect at 90 degrees to the direction of the stones dropping. So what does that mean? It just means that if we believe that our words and actions have effect and that the words and actions are a result of us heading toward our goal, then we need to make sure that we have a certain amount of integrity that we can no longer be irresponsible about any thoughts, words, or actions, and that our words and actions do create an often incidental effect on our students, and that we need to be vigilant in our consideration of exactly what effects we are creating and what are the consequences of these effects. So let's take, as example, a martial artist, I'm a martial artist and my goal, in other words, my being a body in motion is heading toward the goal of being the best martial artist I can be. And as a result, I start teaching and I open up a commercial school. And as part of my instruction that I do for commercial gain, I start teaching students how to survive, say, a street fight, car and jacking, home invasion or whatever it might be that I would need to make sure that what I'm teaching has integrity. In other words, that it would really work, that I'm in, I am basing what I'm teaching on real-world experience. I love to always quote Benny the Jet, or Kidas, as you know, he's a real role model of mine. When somebody tries to teach Benny something, he will often stop them and say, first of all, before you start teaching me, what personal life experience have you had with what you're teaching or telling me. Had, did you learn it in a book? Did you, you see it on YouTube? Or have you had actual experience? Have you pressure tested? And I always remembered that and I thought it's totally valid because I think you would agree, Rod, that there's a lot of martial artists out there that yes, teach karate, teach traditional martial arts, fine. But there are a lot of people making a living out of teaching reality-based techniques that have never really had a street fight in their lives. Now, one could argue how important or not that is. I believe it is in, in the fact that until you've really been on the line, you can't possibly understand adrenal dump, what high levels of heart rate do to your complex and gross motor skills, etc., etc. In other words, it's a certain experience one needs to have had to effectively be able to teach. So, 
That's really and for, and a good example is Judy. In some people won't remember Billy Blanks, but Billy Blanks, of course, started Taibo, you know, which was kind of martial arts techniques involved in a kind of an aerobic class. And Judy remembers a girl in the class saying, "Oh, the great thing is we can actually defend ourselves now." And I remember thinking, "Oh my God, you know, is is that the ninety degree or processional effect of Taibo? Is that this?" Lady actually believes she has the confidence and the ability to defend herself in a real world attack, and that's really what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that we need to again be responsible for our thoughts, thoughts, words, and actions. And this is and why I became aware of it, at least in my own life, and the responsibility that I think we should have as instructors is what I mentioned before, and I'll repeat again when I got a text from. A student that I hadn't seen in thirty years. He texted me on Facebook and he said, "Look, I haven't put a gi on in thirty years. I'm now a teacher." He said, "But every day I still teach a lot of the lessons that you taught me in those karate classes all that time ago." And I suddenly occurred to me, "Wow, I mean, I would be completely unaware of the effect of my words and actions on this individual, and therefore it presupposes that." As a teacher, we have an effect on on so many students that we teach, and again, we need to do so with integrity. And uh, that's really what I'm on about with the whole uh, processional effect and how important it is. So, enough of that. Let's move on. So, you know, when you were saying that, I think there's also something very important there about when you start something that you believe is important for your development, that you see it through. What I notice is people quit way too early. And definitely what's a thread in your life and in your story is that you focused on martial arts, but you continue to focus on it, even when probably you didn't have to anymore, right? You could have done other stuff, but you realize that that was the catalyst. That was the impetus for the, that allowed you to do all the things that you have ended up doing. And you've always stayed true to that, to that path. And so I think that speaks to just having that grit and that resilience and not just giving up just when things get a little bit hard, right? Yeah, and, and and there's some things I've tried, by the way, that I have stuck with, I believe, long enough to go, you know what, this isn't, this isn't for me, and that's fine too. But you'll never know it unless you sort of dip your toes in the pool in the first place, you know? I remember with jiu-jitsu, you know, I started in late 80s, and my first lessons were Hicks and Gracie. And it all came from Chuck going to Rio, coming back with a tape of Hickson, as you know, as a legend in the Gracie family, doing his Valley Tudo matches, you know, his No Rules matches. And Chuck showed it to me and we were talking about it. Anyway, I ended up looking up Horion Gracie, who I found was living in Los Angeles, and gave him a call. And again, I'm cutting this story short. And I wanted a private lesson. Yeah, sure. You know, this is again, this is before the UFC, before all of that. And I ran around to Horian's house. And of course, my first lesson is with Hicks and Gracie. Hoist Gracie was there as well. And my, so I, I basically, my intro was Hoist gets on his back and I have to sit on him, which for those who know is the mount position. I've got to try and stay there. And then he sat on me and I have to try and get him off. You know, this is not punching or striking or anything. Now, obviously, both were impossible for me. And I remember leaving the house and that was a bit of the intro, you know, the Hickson put me through. And by the way, the very first thing he said to me, because he knew I, from talking that I had a stand-up background, martial arts, kickboxing, 
And the first thing he says is, oh, my friend, you want to put the gloves on, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And luckily I was smart enough to think, no, 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 no. I just really want to see what you guys do. So that was kind of funny because remember they were the early days where Horan was going around challenging a lot of the martial artists, different arts to try and prove the the efficiency of, uh, of jujitsu. But anyway, I remember walking away and sitting in my car and I thought, you know what? I just felt like a little baby on the ground with these guys. And the easiest thing would have been for me to justify, well, if I'd have punched him, he wouldn't have done that. And if I'd have done this and done that, but I had to be honest and go, you know what? How good can I be if I start to add this to what I do? And the important word being add rather than instead of. It wasn't like now I'm going to do jiu-jitsu instead of my stand-up. I thought if I can add this, I am going to be so much better at martial arts. And that's what started my jiu-jitsu journey. And that was fearful. I mean, to go and train later on with the Machados in a garage in Redondo Beach... You know, they're all just living in one house. I mean, I'm like a fish out of water. And he's a, you know, I'm a guy that's had a lot of years in martial arts. So you can imagine for your ego, that's also quite confronting, you know. But again, you just got to dare to participate and jump in. And, and that's, again, after 30 plus years, what an incredible journey that started me on. But it gets back to, yes, it's fearful, but say yes anyway and give it a go, you know. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I was just, as you were saying that I was thinking about, because we share a, a common coach, Higgins Machado. So Higgins, my coach, and he's also your coach. One of the things that I'm always reminded about when I think of Higgins, he is, has this expression where he says, jujitsu isn't complicated, people complicated. And so I think that also speaks to just being open to keeping things simple and not overcomplicating things. And I think a lot of times people tend to overcomplicate things and that causes much of their stress. Yeah, I listen, bless Higgins' heart, but I disagree with him. I think it's really fucking complicated. (laughs) 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 For the very reason that, you know, as you know, it's like traditional arts. You know, when you look at karate, the kata stay the same, the forms, the drills stay the same. Why? Because they want to remain true to the tradition the great thing about jiu-jitsu is it allows itself to evolve, at least the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, almost by the month. I mean, look at the leg attacks and the lower body attacks that people are doing now that we never did when I first started the training. So the evolution, to me, makes it complicated in that it's very hard to keep up with. You know what I mean? You, you have to be on the mat a lot. So bless his heart. But I understand what he's saying. It's important, of course, what he's saying, that if you start or introduce something to somebody to something like jiu-jitsu is really keep it fundamental. You know, the, the, the hardest thing I think is an instructor, which I believe people like Jean-Jacques and Higgin and I totally understand is, is remembering what we, what the beginner's mind is like, because we get to such a level of skill that we assume that, that there's a frame of reference for a beginner student and there isn't. You know, it's like you need to keep it very basic and understandable to the beginner and, and, and allow him to comprehend what the game of jujitsu is. And as the months and the years go on, of course, you can add complexity to the whole art. But, you know, I've had, it's, I've had an instructor, I won't name who, that'll do seminars. And most people just switch off because the stuff is so complex if you don't have prior knowledge of whatever the drills are, 
So that really becomes self-defeating. There's no point to that. So I think, I think that's probably what, what Higgin is on about. Mm. So what I take from that is not so much, I guess, in the physical sense of what we see as what could potentially look as a complex process of movements, but rather being open to what is self-evident. You know, I think a lot of times what people tend to do is they overcomplicate everything they do. And this is what then ends up becoming the thing that makes it difficult for them to achieve success. I think there's some value in saying, what do I really need? What are the, what is, what is, if I broke everything down and I took away all the non-essentials, what am I actually left with? And I believe that if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't actually need a lot in order to be happy. But most people keep looking for something outside of themselves, which I think really comes back to what you started off in saying when you were talking about self-reliance, is that knowing yourself, knowing what you are good at, knowing what you're not so good at, and focusing on the truly important things. And I think that's where the, 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 the simplicity comes in, is that once you take away the non-essentials, what are you actually left with? What do you really, really need to be truly happy? And, and as you say, happy for you, you know, and this is, this is like what martial arts get to try and, you know, the reason we, we try but this, we do this and we do this and we internalize and we try it. And by the way, it's in the doing. You can't just sit in armchair stuff, this stuff, as you know, better than anybody. You've got to get on the mat. You've got to get on the floor and do it. And eventually you arrive at, I believe, what your expression of art is. And I've always said that art is individual expression. You can get five painters painting the same tree. That tree will look different on each canvas, you know. That's individual expression. You, you know, and it, martial arts for me is like, it's like music. You know, when people learn to play the piano, they play the same notes, the same scales, the same chords. They eventually learn to play a song that somebody has composed. But the ultimate expression is when they compose their own music. Those same fundamentals are their expression, you know, and that becomes art. And I think martial arts is no different. It's like what I teach at seminar is at this stage of the game is what I've found to be what I love most about what I've learned in the arts, which could be very different from the next person. And thank God it is because the last thing we want is to be clones of everybody. I mean, I never want to be a clone of, of my, any of my instructors. I want to take what they've had internalized and I want to do the way they do it. But eventually I want to feel and express it the, the way that I believe it should be expressed, you know, and I think that's very important too. But like always, it's just taking all those little pieces, but you gotta, you got to step out of your comfort zone, step onto the mat and dare to get dirty, sweaty and everything else to find out whatever that is that sort of, like, you know, floats your boat, as they say, you know. <laughs> no, that's, that's beautiful. So, Richard, I have to do this because I think it's really uh, something that people would want to hear just because of your close relationship with Chuck Norris. What is your favorite Chuck Norris story? Oh, gee whiz. Come on, Rodney, now you're making me feel <laughs> I haven't got an answer for that. My favorite Chuck Norris story. Oh, well, it, it's, it, it, you're talking about a serious story. I'll tell you a serious story yeah. that I love that Chuck told me that it's actually in his book. 
I mean, there's funny things I could tell you about, but he might kick the crap out of me if I tell you things like that. So um, that that I love the story of of Chuck, and this, by the way, is 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 very illustrative of what we've been talking about. That Chuck told me he used to train Steve McQueen, you know, who people know, iconic actor, and he trained him for years. And there was a stage where Chuck closed down his martial arts schools. He decided he needed to do something else, and he was having dinner with Steve McQueen. I, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but Steve basically said, well, look, you've closed in shoes. What are you going to do with your life? You know? And Chuck said, well, oh, I don't know. What do you mean? And Steve apparently said, well, had you ever thought about acting? And Chuck said he laughed. He said, oh, Steve, acting? I couldn't do acting, you know? I mean, I don't know anything about it. And Steve basically said, oh, so for years you've been telling us in martial arts we're capable of anything as long as we apply ourselves and we focus and we train hard, we can achieve whatever, and you're telling me now you can't do something? And Chuck said he laughed and he said, he suddenly said, well, I didn't say I couldn't do it, you know. <laughs> and that's really what started him, you know, taking, taking that on and, and getting into the whole idea of acting was through that conversation with Steve McQueen. So once again somebody stepping out of the comfort zone. In fact, you know, the impetus this time of the catalyst was somebody like Steve who reminded Chuck of the lessons that he was giving out. As you know, it's, we're very, very good at giving lessons. We're very bad at taking our own advice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so as we come to the end of this, Richard, what would be your parting words? What would be the kind of final thing that you'd want to say coming to the end of this interview, just the final words of motivation? Oh, again, just just accept fear. You know, my, you know, I'm not sure if you know of Jeff Thompson. You know, he's a friend in England. Mm -hmm. Wrote, you know, on the door and watch my back and lots of book about fear. But you know, just I just want people to remember, and it's it's so true. Jeff Jeff basically said, anyone who says they don't feel fear is either stupid or they're lying. That it's a natural feeling. It's a natural course of of self-development and everything. And once you understand it and you're okay with that and you realize you are the same as just about everybody else, depending on what they're being confronted with, get that out of the way and then just, just dare to participate, dare to step out of your comfort zone and try something different. And it'll be different for a lot of people, whatever that may be. You know, I, I just love, you know, a friend of mine, you know, Clint and I, we're, we're sort of very much into Wim Hof at the moment. You, you know, the, the Iceman, yeah, yeah. you know, and I love it. And the reason I love it is that, first of all, it's a very simple breathing exercise. For those who don't know, without going into Wim Hof, because we don't have time, he climbed up the top of Mount Everest in a pair of shorts and bare feet. He holds a world record submerged in ice for an hour and a half, blah, blah, blah. But part of his breathing thing is that, and then there's the cold showers, you know. So I started doing that. And the first cold shower I had I was like, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be horrible. You know? And of course I just told myself it was going to be horrible. So it was after a few days, I got used to it. Now it's a daily thing for me to have these three minute cold showers. And it's just a way of continually trying to confront myself with something that's uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, because it, it's, it's what life does. Life throws shit at you. You know, God, my Judy and I are in 2008, to 10 when the big financial collapse, I, I thought that was the end of my life, you know? 
talk about something to get through. You know, we lost a unit we had in the States. We were in debt with all. And I literally, I literally got to a stage where I said to Judy, which I never thought I would, I said, I actually get why people end up putting a gun in their mouth and pulling the trigger when you think you'd have to live three lifetimes to get through it. But you know what? We got through it. Everything is great. I'm working and doing movies and everything's fantastic. So, you know, your always life is going to throw this shit at you. But I just think find things that challenge you that are kind of within your control which again for me is Wim Hof with the freezing cold showers, the ice baths, of course. Imagine sitting in ice and you only have to do it for a few minutes. The discipline to do the breathing every day, which turns your blood alkaline, which has anti-inflammatory response. In other words, it's stuff that I can choose to do that are going to make me more able to address stresses that are put on me. And that's the whole point. Where you can go in a shower that's freezing cold, and just be totally still and in the moment, not shivering, because, you, you know, the fight or flight response is, oh, people start shivering and they tense up. Well, that's what we do to any sort of stress. With fear, we tense up. Everything locks up. Breathing becomes shallow. Rather than relaxing, taking it into the belly, autogenic or combat breathing comes into it. And, and stuff like Wim Hof allows me to practice that. So I just believe I'm preparing myself again for stresses of life. And I would recommend to anybody, it's, it's the simplest thing. You can find Wim Hof, go and Google it. There's a commune, it's called, and it's like 45 bucks for a year. You get all the little videos where he'll talk you through the process. Just again, it's confronting, but give it a go. You know, don't wait to be jumped on like the old ambush, which we'll talk about another time. You know, the old king hit the startled flinch and scares the shit out of you. It just gets you mentally and physically a little more prepared, as I keep saying, for the stresses that life will ultimately throw you. And it will throw them to you. You know, I, I always said that, you know, life on, you know, they talk about heaven and hell. I think living, you know, this lifetime is, pretty much hell i believe if you weren't given obstacles and 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 things that make you grow there's virtually no point you being here in this earthly form you know that's what it's all about so get over it get over yourself challenge yourself whatever that may be and that's my advice to everybody to learn more about the art of self-reliance our virtual coaching service online courses and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.